those of you who are used to doing presentations realize that the slide actually triggers something and enables you to actually you know, pursue what you are presenting in such a way that it makes some sense to those who are listening. But we don't have that. So um, I, I did tell you last night that the WJ stands for William John. It also stands for winging. <laughs> Trevor winging it moral, because I've been winging it for most of my ministry. At this stage of New Horizon, I have to tell you, I am tired, and in terms of what my grandmother would say, I could cope for at any time. And those of you who know how to cope for know what that means. I could fall over here. You're going to be, uh, you know, you're going to be aware at the end of what I do, you know, the limits of my competence. You're going to see that so clearly. I am not a historian. Some people will wonder whether I'm a theologian even, I have to tell you. After going to, you know, to, to Lucan, I was invited uh, to Maynooth Seminary, uh, to a, a gathering of major theologians in the discussion of Christology. There only were about six or seven of us. I felt this was an extraordinary invitation. And we were sitting around, it came to lunch. And this uh, Church of Ireland, uh, but, but from England... Uh, theologian was sitting there and, and suddenly from the bottom of the table he said, Oh Trevor, I've seen your book which caused all these theologians to stop to see what that major tome was and he said, Oh yes, your cookbook. <laughs> Some of you may have seen me on the cookbook well past on, on a cover of a cookbook which it was called Trevor's Cookbook, which drove my wife crazy because she did all the work with all the things, and all I did was pose for this blinking picture, which looked a complete clown on, on the cover of it. You will wonder at the end of this what my levels of confidence are, but I have to tell you what we're going to talk about in terms of remembering the past is partly to do with what I've been involved in mission. This is not simply an academic reflection. I'm a kingdom person. I have been called by God to exercise ministry in a certain part of this island. I've also been called to engage in a reconciliation ministry, not just on this island, but, but more recently with Palestinian Christians and Messianic Jews, which I want to tell you makes the Irish peace process seem like a Sunday school picnic. That is so difficult. Um, there are issues of land and there are issues of the past and of history that colors and influences these believers in Yeshua who are followers of Jesus Christ but are utterly polarized in their self-understanding. Uh, we, we've been meeting over the number of years and it all started at the Bangor Worldwide Missionary Convention, I have to tell you. Uh, what had happened was that... Uh, a very eminent Palestinian theologian from Bethlehem Bible College called Muntur Isaac, uh, at my suggestion, was invited to the convention. Uh, he was doing his doctorate in Oxford. It wasn't far away. You know, he was able to cut fly across. Uh, but by having a Palestinian present at the Bangor Worldwide Mission Convention brought that committee under enormous criticism and abuse. Uh, many from the Messianic Jewish tradition, um, many Zionists were, you know, sending them emails, you know, suggesting they would withdraw their support. Even though at the same conference there was David Zadok, um, who's a wonderful, wonderful, godly man, 
a Messianic Jew who, who leads a, a, a Reformed Baptist church in, in Jerusalem. He was an officer in, 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 the, uh, in the Israeli army. Uh, and they said to me, Trevor, I was invited them to come. Trevor, would you come as a sort of moderator, you know, for this event? Now, I had been moderator of the Presbyterian Church now, in case you don't know what a moderator is. Uh, it is actually a device used for plumbing that controls the flow of gas. <laughs> so so I, I, I was invited to control the flow of gas at, at this potentially explosive meeting. I, I remember asking uh, Tom, Tom Clark how many... How many do you think will come? Oh, he said 50, maybe 60 people. Hundreds came to this thing with strong views. Not necessarily that they had a grasp of the issue, but strong views. But they were reflecting not just their own struggles, but the struggles of this island itself in which we live. I'd said last night that because of you know, 1947, the creation of the State of Israel was for one an opportunity of great hope. At last, uh, uh, they could live at peace without the abuse of Semitism and the Holocaust. It was a day of great freedom and rejoicing for them. But for the Palestinian Christians, as well as the Palestinian Muslims, it's known as Nakba. It is catastrophe. Now, out of this context, and this is where my thinking began in terms of remembering the past, it did not begin in the Irish context, even though I'm a missionary, you might say, and I work in the Irish Republic, and this has been in my entire world, but it actually began, my reflection began, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I was taught, and that is why you've heard me use this expression before, I was, I was taught through this discussion to distinguish between history a narrative. Uh, folks, this is so important. Uh, most of us assume that when we speak about the past, and not least about our past in the Irish context, uh, who, whatever our identity is, that we are simply talking about things that happened and it's empirically evident and you know, we can do all the research to demonstrate that what we are saying is true. Folks, that is not what happens. Each of us have narratives that we tell. You, you see, a historian, when they are functioned, claims some level of objectivity of the past. They will look at extant manuscripts. They, they will examine the evidence. They will seek to discover how it happened, when it happened, why it happened, the various factors, social, economic, political, all of those elements that constitute the events or event. Now, of course, they will be selective in, in their reporting. You have to do that. Everyone who does it. But what happens in narrative is this. That you choose from the past those things that are really important to you in terms of your identity. Uh, you will talk about incidents that have happened either at a personal level or at a corporate level and they will be selectively chosen to reinforce who you are, and often, and this is what's happening in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, to demonstrate who are the goodies and who are the baddies, who are the white hats, who are the black hats. Now, you can apply that, of course, to the Irish situation. <coughs> if you want to talk to some people in terms of, you know, what caused the problem in this island of Ireland, it is not simply that you will go to objective historians. There are some. 
Uh, I mean, I, I, but they're hard to find, let me tell you. I, I've got to know Ruth Dudley Edwards. Some of you may have heard of Ruth Dudley Edwards. She has a caustic tongue and she has a caustic pen as well, I want to tell you, but she is such fun. And she comes from a strong Republican tradition, but somehow she has you know, embraced you know, orangeism and, 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 and unionism as, as you know, a, a viable and reasonable explanation of what is taking place on the island, and she is radically critical of some of, of the Republicans. Tim Pat Coogan, on the other hand, who's a historian, is really an apologist for the Republican cause, I want to tell you that. It's more narrative than history, even though they claim to be objective historians. Now, we, of course, you know, have functioned on that basis uh, throughout our lives. I often say, in terms of who I am, um, I, I was raised in one narrative, and I have lived my entire life in another narrative. I, I know I said a little bit on, on Monday and last night about, about my background. Um, my father was not uh, at all sectarian, I have to tell you that. He had been a member of the Orange Order, he had also been a Freemason, but I don't know what happened to him in terms of his spiritual pilgrimage, but he, as a quite young man in his early 20s, chose to, to leave the Orange Order and to leave Freemasonry because he felt... And it's interesting, not because he felt they were theologically in error, but this was his reason that he gave to me, that he would not have a bond of fellowship that was superior to his love and loyalty to the members of the body of Christ. Isn't that interesting? He would not be in a brotherhood or in a community, whatever their theological convictions, and that wasn't the issue for him, but it put higher loyalties upon him in terms of his responsibility to the family of God of which he was a part. And so he left that. He was not at all sectarian in his attitudes. My, my mother was. I have to <laughs> That's a different, different kettle of fish um, because of her backgrounds. But, but, you know, all of that was part of my upbringing. It was, just seemed so natural. And, and you know that if you're raised in the north of Ireland, as most of you have been, you know, going to church and, you know, going to watch the, the Orangemen and voting unionist and having a British identity and being loyal to Her Majesty the Queen and understanding I mean, all these dreadful people who are Republicans and are seeking to destroy you and, you know, Catholics can't be trusted because they are potentially Republicans and they're not actually Republicans uh, and, and your whole identity is threatened even by having them in the street. Uh, you know, all of that sort of stuff. We, we, we have imbibed that. I lived in that. I ministered in that for a number of years and then God called me, as I explained last night, through Jonah to go and minister in a quite different context where I heard extraordinary narratives. I have an elder, uh, or had an elder, I'm not retired, but one of my elders, his father had been part of the 1916 uprising. Um, and, and therefore, I, I, I still listen to, to people, and Robbie will know some of them, because Robbie was a member of an elder of our church in Lucan. And, and, and they would just, they cannot get their heads around, I want to tell you this, they cannot get their heads around your narrative of your British and Unionist. They just can't understand it. What is wrong with you? Like, how can you British and Irish at the same time? It just doesn't connect as far as they're concerned. They have lived, and this is their narrative, uh, they have lived, you know, in years of English oppression. Um, they may see faults and weaknesses in what took place in 1916. Uh, there may be all sorts of moral questions, and you may want to talk to me about Padre Pierce and the blood sacrifices and all those elements that were being present at that time. 
But they saw this as somehow an opportunity for them to express their independence um, from what had been oppressive from the past. And as followers of Jesus Christ, they want to do that on the island of Ireland. Now, here's the issue. Whatever country you are a part of in the world, all of them have incredibly questionable moral backgrounds. You know, you, you can't suddenly say, we are the right ones, well, you know, we've done it all. My, my for example, I'll give you, United States of America. You ask most Americans, whether Republican or Democrat, what is the history of the United States of America? How did it come into existence? Da 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 da. Well, it's quite a different story because my son works in Minneapolis and Minnesota in the theater, and the first theater that offered him employment was a Native American theater. So when we went to visit him, you know, the first gathering of, of his friends were Native Americans. American Indians used to call them, remember? You ask them what is the history of America. It's a completely different narrative, you see. If you ask Aborigines in Australia, what is the history of Australia? No matter what country you go to, there are diverse and different narratives. Well, in terms of the Irish situation, um, there are, let me just refer to 1916 uh, in terms of the Easter Rising. Um, this was an enormous challenge for the Irish government as to how to commemorate this. I don't think you quite realize that. Um, because the, the Irish state, as a republic, did not come into existence in 1916. Uh, some of you who know anything about Irish history will realize that there were various conflicts that took place, and eventually the treaty and the, the amazing conflict between Fine Gael and Fine Foyle. Um, all, all, all of those things are, are, are you know, part and parcel of the, of, the, of the sort of evolution of the creation of the state of the Irish Republic. And they also felt uncomfortable because of the tensions of the Civil War between how the uprising and the manner of the violent uprising that took place, not least with the theories and arguments of Patrick Pierce with regard to blood sacrifice, that it was used by the provisional IRA as a rationale and a justification for the continuation of the armed struggle because the full independence of the liberation of the total island of Ireland had not yet taken place. They were under enormous pressure as to how to do this. <coughs> and, and you might think, well, it was all about, you know, they just celebrate the rising and so on. But it was done with extraordinary nuance. And uh, they asked uh, Heather Humphreys, appointed by Endicani, uh, to be not just the Minister of the Gale Talk, but responsible for organising and overseeing such commemorations in 1960. Heather Humphreys, uh, you probably realise, is a Presbyterian uh, from Monaghan, uh, whose father signed, whose grandfather rather, signed the Ulster Covenant. I mean, so she came from really unionist stock, who eventually became part of, as an Irish speaker, uh, as a leader of government. And what was also interesting, that one of the key players in the organizing of the commemorations of 1916 was the clerk of session of Rathgar Presbyterian Church, Christchurch Rathgar, uh, Brigadier General Paul Fry, who is the head of the Irish Air 
Ercor. Uh, I baptize a number of his children, actually. And, and, uh, and Paul, he was responsible for much of the military preparations in terms of the marching and the training and so on. So here you have, folks, Presbyterians on this island, right? <coughs> in major, leading positions of responsibility, commemorating, I think, maybe strategically appointed, to do this with some level of sensitivity and conciliation. Um, and I suppose for them, the most significant thing that they chose to, Heather Humphrey chose to do, and I have publicly commended her for this, was the wall in Glasnevin Cemetery. It was an amazing thing to do. Uh, where instead of simply having a jingoistic memorial to commemorate those who had led the, the Easter Rebellion, this is a wall in which the names of all those who died at the, at the Easter Rising, uh, both British forces, members of the police, uh, civilians, all of them are listed in alphabetical order. And uh, um, I was invited on behalf of the church to participate. I want to tell you that the Presbyterian Church really struggled as to whether anyone should attend. Because it's a sort of threat to you know, many people's identities. And I, you know, what happens is if you're sitting in church house, you, you get emails, concerned elder from a hot. Um, <laughs> you can just imagine. So there's all this like, what? So in these moments, who do they wheel in? It's always, blah. I'm the one they bring in. I, it's quite extraordinary. I, even at an event like New Horizon, I was laughing with my wife, you know. I'm always invited to do the hard things. You know, anybody wants to speak on... Who will speak on the gay issue? Bring in Morrow. <laughs> who will talk about the past? Bring in Morrow. You know. how, how, how do we engage in remembering the basis of the scriptures? I get asked to do things. Simply because I, I you know, I, this is my life. This is the ministry I've been engaged in within the Republic. And I have had to struggle with, in a nuanced matter, to be faithful to God and to the scriptures and to the call of God in mission, and yet to encourage people to remember their past according to the values and principles of the kingdom. It has caused me um, to be involved in various ministries. One was, of course, Nexus Island, which was the Reconciliation Ministry at the Lucan Centre. You know, because, because of this alienation of narrative and how we understand our past, and those who are Psalm and those who are Easter Rising. Um, we set up this centre, you know, in the Troubles, uh, to create a place where young people, as a cross-community, cross-border, evangelical, reconciliation initiative, under the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, under the Youth Board at that time. And, and we could do it. We were permitted to do it by the Presbyterian Church, provided we didn't ask for any money for the Presbyterian Church in Ireland to support it because it was such a threat to the establishment and to the status quo. We were asking for young people from whatever background, Republican or Loyalists, um, whether they were orange or green, whether they were Catholic or Protestant, it made no difference. We invited them to come, and the principle of this ministry was to bring young people to such a radical commitment to Jesus Christ and to the Jesus Creed, as, 
as we heard this morning, and to the values and principles of the kingdom of God, that all the other loyalties and allegiances would be secondary. We weren't asking them to cease to be who they were in terms of their self-understanding, but in order to become utterly committed to Jesus Christ. I can tell you the flack we got from this. That ministry was primarily supported by Irish-American Roman Catholics, let me tell you folks. Most of that evangelical ministry was not supported by the church, which is meant to be in the vanguard as a sign of the kingdom of God, in my opinion. So I've been involved in the edge. (laughs) I'm being willing to put my neck on the line on many, many issues, not least because of, of the context of mission in which we are engaged in. And it's on that basis we've tried to turn to the past. Now, I... I spoke on Monday night, um, and I want to recap this for a moment, on on how we are encouraged to engage in these Sukkar moments, Uh, and I referred to them uh, with regard to to the the Passover and the Lord's Supper. And, And in those moments, we are meant to remember not only what what we, what we had been and where we once were, and that we were slaves, and, and God had rescued us and redeemed us, and had given us the anticipation of, of what was yet to come in terms of our redemption. But at the same time, we were to remember those who have been like us and are like us, who are crying out, who are in pain, who are suffering injustice, and not least because of the history of this of this island. Um, that's, that's our responsibility. And we are to remember, I think, coloured and controlled by those Sokar moments with regard to God's redemptive purpose for us in Jesus Christ. Now, let me try and tease out some implications for you. I'm really winging it. I want to tell you that. I'm, I'm, am I doing okay? You know, are you with me? Uh, <laughs> there are implications for how we remember, and I've tried to think these through because this is, this is a passion of my heart. I, I, I just want to be able to love people. I, I, want, I want them to understand that I'm hearing what they're saying. I, I, I want to be in safe places where, where they can tell me stories about their past and the influences on their lives. Whoever they are, wherever they're from, makes no difference to me, however painful it might be. I've heard some extraordinary stories in my time. Let me tell you the story. I um, took my elders on a retreat. Uh, to a Catholic retreat centre called Belinter House. It was run by the Sisters of Zion. Their, their ministry was primarily to the Jews. It was a place, you know, not far. It, it was Navan. It wasn't far from us in Lucan. And, and the, the week that we were to go, I get a phone call from the Mother Superior saying, I should explain to you, Reverend Mar, you're not going to be on your own. There's going to be another group there with you. And I said, that's fine. But, but she said, I have to tell you, it's the executive of Sinn Féin. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, that's fine, that's not a problem to me. You know, some of our folks are worse than they are. They just, 
any rate, we arrived on the Friday night, and uh, this is outrageous, but only in a Catholic convent in Ireland would there be a bar. You understand? <laughs> and the sisters are serving at the bar because it's supplemented their income. Right? So we're, we're, we're all se- we're seated at our tables and the sinners are at their tables and uh, we've finished our sessions for the evening. Comes to 11 o'clock, the bar closes. And, and <laughs> the sinners go out and they're prepared for this. They've got the six packs, right? <laughs> so they're coming, setting the six packs on the table, including our tables, right? And one of our elders, Trish, who Robbie knows, Trish shouts out, I don't like beer. Has anybody got wine? Joe Cahill, you remember Joe Cahill, <laughs> commanding officer of the provisional IRA, Joe says, come over here, dear, I have the wine. So now we are divided, not by being presbies or sinners, we are wine drinkers and beer drinkers in a Catholic convent on a Friday night, okay? We talked to two and three in the morning about everything under the sun with the Sinn Féin. We shared our faith. We shared our visions. They shared their stories. They told us their narrative. We heard their history. We listened and responded, you see. We created a space where they could talk freely and openly. One of the most amazing thing is the next morning at 11 o'clock, I'm standing with a group, you know, as you do in these conferences, we're drinking coffee, and we're about to go back to our various sessions. And Jerry Adams comes, comes to me. I'm with Brian Murta, uh, who, who uh, Robbie knows, and the lady who was facilitating our retreat. And he said this to me. These are his words. You know, Trevor, what we're here for. They were discussing the decommissioning of weapons. Okay? And he said, I have with me hawks and doves, as you might imagine. We would really appreciate if you would pray for us while we're discussing. Is that not just mind-boggling? Is that not mind-boggling? Is this a God moment or what? That we somehow, in God's providence, have been brought to this place to talk and we pray like crazy. We abandon everything to pray for these guys. And and they decommissioned. How they decommissioned. I built such a relationship with Martin McGuinness um, that I, when I became moderator, which was the next year, moderator of the General Assembly, I, I, and this has been part of my ministry, I, I chose to meet with every single member of the Northern Ireland Executive just to pray with them, not to discuss politics, but to act as a pastor and, and to pray for them according to their personal needs. Well, the first to respond, because I spent a weekend with him, blethering and arguing and all sorts of stuff, was Martin. And, and, and I, I went and I was given a 20-minute slot. It turned out to be two hours with this man. Two hours. We just... I will never tell anyone what he told me. Never. It was heart-wrenching. It was, it was genuine. Uh, it was about his family. Once we got past the notion that I was going to talk politics with him, I, I just became somebody who wanted to share his life so that he could tell his story and his narrative, his meta-narrative, his small narrative, where his background, what was happening in his family, the pain of separation and so on. But there were aspects of his 
earlier past, but it was just shocking, actually, you can imagine. And I built that rapport because that is, folks, that's part of our ministry. Mm-hmm. Folks, that is our ministry. That is the Jesus creed. If we're not doing this, what are we doing as followers of Jesus in terms of, of learning from our past and learning from those who are separated from us? It's part of our history on this island. I want to tell you um, two things about Martin. What, I, I had to go for serious surgery. You know that. I, I had to go to London to have a tumour removed from my brain. I had to write my own funeral, which was an interesting experience. Um, <laughs> Marky, when I finished writing it, I thought to myself, this is a cracker of a funeral. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to miss this. <laughs> but, but two days before I'm on the plane off, off to London, um, this handwritten letter comes. It's from Martin McGuinness. Martin, I, and he said, Trevor, I've heard that you're going for serious surgery. I want to assure you we're behind you and I'll pray for you. Whatever that meant for him, I'm not sure. But, but he wanted to express this, this commitment to me. So, so just a couple of years ago, I, you know, uh, I, I get involved in all these funny things that nobody else seems to want to go to in our church. But at any rate, uh, Michael D., you know, the Irish leprechaun who's now pre- uh, president. The <laughs> like, it's so small. <laughs> <laughs> is this not far better without the slides? <laughs> I'm beginning to enjoy myself. <laughs> Michael has installed. I'm involved in the you know, commissioning service, uh, and, and we're you know we're processing you know with all the gear, and Michael at the front, and I'm behind, and there they are lined up. Include, there's Martin Guinness and Peter Robinson and they're all in the line and guess what happens Martin comes out of his line straight over to me during the procession and he said to me Trevor what is your health like now you know are you, are you, are you coping okay Folks, those are the relationships we build when we, we create the spaces mm-hmm. to allow people to tell their stories you see on the island of Ireland there are two distinct ways of learning from the past. I, I've had to learn in a strange way, simply by accident. I discovered that my predecessor in Lucan, James Irwin, um, was one of the leading Republicans who raised money for Sinn Féin in America with Emmett de Valera. Right? You know, that's common knowledge, okay? Presbyterian minister goes to America with Dev to raise money, you know, for the Republican cause. That's part of our history, folks. I don't care who you are, wherever you're from. There are two narratives taking place on this island. And and there are brothers and sisters in Christ within both those narratives. Our job is to ensure that the meta-narrative, the big narrative, the gospel narrative, the story of the kingdom, not just colors, but controls how we understand our past and how we deal with it. Well, you know, when we remember, I, I'll try and get to my notes now. Are we nearly done? They <laughs> <laughs> just wind me up and I'll just keep going. <laughs> the way we remember the past, because remembering is, it, I mean, it's really important um, that we remember rightly. 
Miroslav Volf, Miroslav Volf, I said on Monday night, has had a profound influence on um, on the thinking of, evan- of evangelicals who were involved in the reconciliation process, process in the north of Ireland. Um, some of you will have realized when, when, when Econi was involved at the very heart of this, remember evangelical contribution in Northern Ireland, some of you were involved in that, I know. Uh, and David Porter, who's now yeah, Justin Welby's right-hand man, um, David worked stronger with that. Uh, and what was, so, what was so amazing was because of the influence of Miroslav Volf, who's this uh, Croatian theologian now at Yale, on the theology of embrace, um, that, that he, they encouraged Econi to hold in as the only organization, I think, in the north of Ireland, the troubles were at its worst, and the provisional IRA still had, de- did, had not decommissioned, and they were still involved in terrorist assaults. <coughs> nobody would touch them, nobody would talk to them, nobody would interact with them, except the evangelicals. Isn't that amazing? I think that's wonderful. I do. People didn't want to know. You know, these were zealots. Fancy Jesus had zealots. These were zealots <laughs> who were instigating rebellion and violent revolution. Oh, really? Those are the sort of people Jesus had around him. So the evangelicals, based upon the theology of embrace, influenced profoundly by Miroslav Volf from Yale, who had this experience, as I recounted it, uh, in the former Yugoslavia, uh, began to develop this understanding of how to remember. Well, at the heart of Volf's writing, if I can remember off the top of my head here, <laughs> are, are, are these three things. One, you need to remember truthfully. If, if, if you have gone through an incident of experience, either individually or collectively, where you live, for example, in, in, in somewhere like Oma or Enselin, or, or Santana or somewhere where there has been a major assault or a case. Um, what happens is it's not that you are you know who have caused you are, who have felt in the immediate pain, but the community itself corporately begins to tell stories and pass them on. Uh, some of you will remember, if, you know, if you're over forty, you will remember some of this. Um, where people would, would tell me, you know, that Ormel bread vans were absolutely filled with dead bodies going down. You know, and it was passed on, you see. These stories were passed on on both sides. Yeah. But they're not truthful. Uh, they are exaggerated. And, and, and they're exaggerated and, and, and in such a way that you're bearing false witness. And the implication is that you're making the baddies worse. You're, you're, you're making the offender more perverse than they actually are. You're actually trying to destroy anything in terms of their integrity of what they're doing and why they're doing it. It is absolutely essential if we are those who have the Jesus creed, if I use that language of Scott, if, if, if those of us who are committed to the values of the kingdom of God, we are committed to telling the truth, even though it is painful for us to listen to. We will not exaggerate. That's the first thing. The second thing that both teach us is, is that we need to remember responsibly. And by that he means that what happens in terms not just of individuals, but, but corporately, is that the abused, in terms of their understanding of what has happened to them from the past, because of the level of pain, become abusers. 
they, they, they feel the responsibility almost to act with a similar level of assault and cruelty and violence as what they have inherited. You know that if you've ever been involved in counselling or, or involved with families, you know, that, that the, the abused can easily become the abuser. So, so people in, in organisations, in communities, in loyalist areas, for example, or in Republican areas, they tell their stories, they pass them on, and, and to such an extent that it becomes almost like a means of equipping, of training, of uh, recruiting people in order to engage in a violent assault. So it becomes a psychosis. It, it's not remembering responsibly. <coughs> it's remembering simply to reinforce the need for you to assault those who are different from you. And the third element is, is from Wolf is that you are to remember peacefully. And by that he means shalom in the full sense of justice and peace. That you are not just simply pursuing justice for yourself. I, I tell you, this is one of the most difficult things that we're called to do in terms of dealing with our past. We want justice for ourselves. This is one of the major threats, I think, to the evangelical community in Ireland today. We have inherited from the past Christendom, where we, you know, had our rights and established what we could and couldn't do. We are now under threat. Because we have, as I described it last night, we, um, we have a non-PC narrative, we have a non-politically correct narrative in a secularized context, and we are under threat. So what the natural and um, response of this is, is to seek justice for ourselves and to make sure we as Christians, our rights, the privileges that we have inherited, the something that we got from the past, are all preserved intact. So the pressure is then on the legal system, on the political society, the politicians, on those in leadership to make sure that there is justice for us. Okay. Well, what, what about the justice for those who, because of their sexual orientation, have been dehumanized in church and society? What have we done for them? That is the reality, folks. We're not talking here about the practice of homosexuality or gay marriage or anything like that. We're just talking a person whose orientation I... You know, we've had Vaughan Roberts here at New Horizon on a couple of occasions, and Vaughan was courageous enough to speak <coughs> of his own struggles of same-sex attraction and how this has been a battle all his life and how he was frightened to sell anybody in the church because of the utter rejection that he would experience. Folks, it's not just rejection. It is, it is just such outrage that they are utterly dehumanized for even considering that they have this, these feelings that they can't explain. And that is true for many of the LGBTQ communities. I know with all the issues that we have, I think as the servants of Christ, before we talk about our own rights, we need to pursue is it, you know, what is just. What is just for those who are different and alienated from us. In that way, we pursue the peace and justice of God. Well, those are the three principles in which we are tired to remember the past. Truthfully, um, responsibly, 
and peacefully. I mean, our memories are, are our memories are inadequate, and our memories need to be redeemed. But but I think, folks, if, if we begin to put that into practice, it will totally transform how we perceive the past. Now, let me, let me tell you just a little bit about the psalm and the 1916 rising. Um, th- they are part of our stories. I know this is not a walkout. <laughs> Enjoy your lunch. I'll be behind you shortly. <laughs> <laughs> Five minutes, okay. Um, in terms of the Battle of the Psalm in 1916, often in terms of, if you're talking to someone for whom the Psalm is of enormous significance in terms of your identity and your background, because for me and our family, uh, the Battle of the Psalm was not just that members of our family uh, you know, went and laid down their lives for the 36th Ultra Division. They went out and laid down their lives in order to preserve the Union. They preserved our British in it. That's how the story's told. Even though, at the same time, John Redmond, who had secured Home Rule uh, through the British Parliament, and Home Rule was almost going to be going to happen, um, because the First World War took place, Redmond encouraged Irish men to engage. Uh, in the battles of the First World War, including the Battle of the Somme, so thousands of Irishmen, not just of the 36 Ulster Division, but thousands of Irishmen lost their lives in the Battle of the Somme. And you know, the tragedy was, because of the 1916 Rising, when they, they came back from the First World War, they were pariahs who were not even able to announce who, where they'd been. It, it was a shame upon the family that they'd been involved in it. That's how they told their stories. So, so one, of the, one of the great things that has happened in terms of the remembering of the past truthfully in the Irish Republic, which I think is to be encouraged, is at last <coughs> those people who gave their lives, Irishmen who were Catholic and non-believers or whatever, are being commemorated and remembered faithfully. I mean, you, 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 when I went to Lucan first, I, I didn't know whether to have Remembrance Day or not. I just didn't know what you did. Um, people were ashamed they would have bought the poppy as they entered the church building and then took it off before they left in case anybody thought you know, they were suspect now that is totally different people are happy to work in the streets um, because at last those people you know, are, being, are being remembered at the same time there are elements of both the Battle of the Somme and the 1916 Rising that are morally indefensible, folks. Uh, and we're not talking here simply uh, about the bloody nature of war, but to take young men and to use them as fodder, thousands of them. And the and let me tell you something. Often it's, it's pure old Padraig uh, Pierce who's accused of, of blood sacrifice language. It was the language used quite commonly uh, in the early 20th century. Because it was, a, it was a time of conflict, a time of war, going all over the place. And the language was that it somehow, if the blood of British people were stained, you know, and flowed through the grounds and, and you know, Europe, it would have to, to liberate and redeem the people. That was the same language used. So it wasn't unusual that Padraig Pierce, um, who was 
was a conservative Catholic and influenced by mysticism, should have used this same redemptive language, but in a much cruder form. In a, I think in a blasphemous form. Where, where these guys who, who led, that was a section of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, not all of them, a section of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, under Pierce's influence, reckoned that on the day of the rising they would be killed. And their death would be like the death of Christ. That's the language he used for the redemption of Ireland, for the liberation of Ireland. They thought there was only a handful of them. Uh, what you may not know in terms of, of, of Irish history is that the vast majority of Irish people thought this was ridiculous, utterly opposed to it, because their expectation was that home rule was going to be achieved. And in my opinion, and, and well, John Bruton certainly has influenced me in this, I, I, you know, if, I, if the Easter Rising had not taken place and home rule had been achieved, we w- would in this island have been something like Canada or Australia, with Her Majesty the Queen still as the monarch, but yet with autonomy and independence. I think today unionists could live with that. Personally, that you can question me afterwards. You don't throw me out yet. <laughs> but at any rate, that's John Bruton's view. You know. um, but what happened was these characters you know, who instigated this rebellion, which, the, as I said, the Irish government struggled to manage, um, they, uh, how can I put this bluntly? If, if the Brits had just shot them on that day, that would be the end of it. But they elongated the process. They became heroes. Stories were told about them. They were elevated. Then they were executed. And they became part of the narrative of what constituted true Irishness. And even though the Catholic Church recognized that there was not one element of the just war theory that Thomas Aquinas had developed that was put in practice during that Easter rebellion and were utterly opposed to it, they, they jumped on board, partly because of the influence of that extraordinary Catholic leader called Cardinal Cullen, who had come back from... Uh, the First Vatican Council, and, and had announced to, to one and all that to be Irish was to be Catholic, and to be Catholic was to be Irish. And so here was the moment in which all of this was solidified and cemented. And uh, the result has been that, you know, up until now, and I suppose until this growing secularization process, we have these two stories, these two narratives um, in which the vast majority of evangelical Protestant Christians are part of one. And the problem is, for me, as a missionary or minister in the Irish Republic, is that many assume that being loyal to Her Majesty, being part of the British system, being a unionist, and being in the United Kingdom and attending an evangelical church and, and you know, preaching the gospel is all the same thing. It's all the same thing. Brothers and sisters, it cannot be. It cannot be. You can be that. You can hold that. 
in my opinion. But we have a higher calling to see the kingdom of God at any cost established on the totality of this island. And we need to learn how to listen uh, to those who have different narratives to ourselves and to listen with sensitivity and openness and let them share with us their frustration and pain and they will listen to us. And we, I hope, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, will be in the vanguard of the new day because we are the children of the age which is to come. Folks, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. I know we've run right into time. Is there anybody who has a really burning question? They said, oh, I wanted to ask that question and didn't give me any time. So is it very quickly? Like know if you're, uh, what I going to say? A strong illusion, a strong delusion. If God puts a strong delusion on you, what does that mean? Send you a strong delusion. <laughs> you mean as a Republican or a no, Unionist? No, as a Christian, a Christian. As a Christian. I have a brother and he, he doesn't, can't get him to be saved, you know. Yes. And it, it must be God has sent him a strong delusion. He doesn't need to be saved. Right. That's what he right, feels. All right, him and his wife. That's what he feels. Yeah. Well, there are two factors involved in that. One, of course, is the powers of darkness that God can use. Uh, and the second is the natural reaction of people who when they're confronted by the reality of God seek to suppress the truth they will suppress the truth in, in righteousness so you're communicating with your life and your love for them uh, the reality of God um, they are blind they cannot see and they are therefore deluded they will be telling as I'm describing it a, a different narrative based upon you know, how they live and the priorities of their lives they're deluded. What do they do? Pray? Just pray? You pray. And, and, and God will zap them. <laughs> what, what? Will zap them. Oh, zap them, yeah. Good. Yeah, that's what it means to be born of God. Yeah. You know, he does the business in an extraordinary way. Because as you will discover, the most unlikely people end up following Jesus. You appear before God in your own body or a new body. Well, can we pick up Trevor? Let's not go into the resurrection just yet. Okay, listen, on your behalf, I want to thank Trevor. The past hour has absolutely flown on stories and narratives and these things that we can connect with. So thank you. Uh, we can and never thank come God, back next and year thank God the mechanisms didn't work. Because <laughs> I'm useless with those things.